Good morning. Hey, I'm wondering, it's, it's odd that we would start by saying take out your phones, but um, do you know how a QR code works? Raise your hand if you know how a QR code works. Wow, that's terrible. Only half of you. Um, so if you open up your phone and your camera and you were to aim it at the little uh, square-looking squiggle thing in front of you, um, it will actually uh, bring up a website when it focuses on that. And that web link in this case will take you to a response or connect card with our church. Um, so I just wanted you to know how that works at the very beginning because at the very end you might want it. Um, at least I'm hoping that we do. We are in Exodus, uh, very beginning, so uh, third week together. Last week, um, Yahweh appeared to Moses and called him uh, to go and lead his people out of exile. And that's where we are picking up. Um, when we left our hero, he was leaving Midian. So chapter 4 of Exodus. I don't know if I said good morning. Good morning. And good morning to those of you attending at home. It's good to have you with us as well. Chapter 4, verse 27, Yahweh said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. And so he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses is having this experience up on Mount Sinai, burning bush, that encounter. And up there, Yahweh tells him, by the way, I'm sending Aaron to you. So previous to Yahweh meeting with Moses, Yahweh had met with Aaron and sent him on his way from Egypt. And so when Moses comes down the mountain, here's his brother. Then Moses told Aaron everything Yahweh had sent him to say and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. And Moses and Aaron brought together the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything that Yahweh had said to Moses. So he's the spokesman, as Yahweh had said. And he also performed the signs before the people. And they believed. Whew. I mean, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that a time when the people believe is a, a beautiful moment. Uh, so they believe. And when they heard that Yahweh was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. They had wondered for so long if Yahweh knew or cared about them um, in their suffering. And now they believed that he did. And things are looking up. If you're Moses, you must be excited. You doubted that the elders would believe you. Yahweh had told you they would, but you kind of questioned him. And you get here, um, and they believe, and they worship, and so things are exciting. And then we get started. Chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Now, that may sound like an odd thing to ask for, since he's actually coming to take them completely out, but this is exactly what Yahweh told him to ask for in chapter 3, verse 18. 
So uh, he's doing what God said. And Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? By the way, that's the same question that Moses had asked up on the mountain, right? Like, who, who are you? What's your name? Who am I to say is calling? Um, who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh. So not only is he, he's probably unaware of who Yahweh is. We don't know the answer to that. He could have known. Yahweh was known to the Egyptians. Um, but what he certainly means is I have no respect for Yahweh. And furthermore, I will not let Israel go. So he goes straight. Remember how Moses went through like four objections and then he said, I really just don't want to go. I really don't want to do what you're saying. That was last week. Uh, this week, Pharaoh cuts to the chase and just says, don't know, don't care, not going to do it. So that's Pharaoh's response. By the way, that should not have discouraged Moses because that's exactly what Yahweh said was going to happen in chapter 3, verse 19. And then Moses says, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to Yahweh our God, or he may strike us with plagues and with the sword. So that's kind of an odd thing to say because Yahweh had not mentioned that follow-up attack. And there's a couple options here that we could explore. Um, But my guess is that because Yahweh in 3.20 had said, by the way, he's not going to let you go. I know that, and I'm going to strike Israel until they, or strike Egypt until he lets you go. And so my guess is that this is Moses' way of saying, hey, by the way, if you don't let us go, he's going to strike us with the sword. And the us there, the last us, I'm guessing, is not us Israelites, but us Egyptians. You may say, well, why would Moses align with the Egyptians? He's an Israelite. Uh, he is barely an Israelite. He is an Israelite in biology. But remember, he spent 40 years in Pharaoh's palace growing up as a future ruler of Egypt, and then he spent 40 years in the wilderness of Midian. So he is two things, an Egyptian and a Midianite. He's not much of an Israelite at this point. So my guess is that when he says us, he's talking about us Egyptians, and he's warning him that things are going to get destroyed if he doesn't act. And by the way, Moses probably had some part in building Egypt during those 40 years. He's invested in it, and he probably doesn't want to see it hurt. Pharaoh, of course, verse 5, said, look, The people of the land are numerous, and you're stopping them from working. Uh, Get back to your work. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply them, the people, with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. So I researched this because I've made very few straw bricks in my time. None. And it's it's an extensive process. And the the directions I saw said that you have to mix it with your feet for two weeks. (laughs) I don't know if that's somebody's just trolling me, like trying to get me to do this. 
um, or if that's legitimate. But it's, a, it's an arduous process, and you need the straw. Without the straw, the bricks um, curl, they, be, they are weak, they're fragile, and they aren't going to function well. They may look fine, but they don't work fine. And so they have to go gather their own straw. Uh, furthermore, verse 8, require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. Um, this is like a builder saying to the people building the house, I'm giving you no resources, but keep going. That's what they're being told to do. And he says they are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it. But the work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. And by the way, once you've found it, you have to chop it very fine. Uh, this isn't like grab some straw and bring it back. There's arduous work to do after you've gathered the straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required for you for each day, just as you when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? So this is at least going on for two days, um, and it's possible that it's longer. There's a lag time between when the bricks are formed and when they are ready to be used because there's a drying time. So it's possible that it's gone on uh, for up to two weeks. Based on this, it could, could be longer. But, uh, so we're somewhere between two days and two weeks as a minimum. Verse 15, then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, and yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. like that's going to go poorly. <laughs> Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Now, get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. Um, in the Hebrew, it says, this is, you say, let us go to worship Yahweh. In the Hebrew, it says, now go and work. He's being funny, cruel. Verse 19, the Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for each day. And when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, all excited about the post-meeting debrief. And they said, may Yahweh look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is not what I thought was going to happen. Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Oh, Lord, why have you brought this trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? In other words, you had a bad plan. Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Moses is saying, I told you so. I told you I was the wrong guy. I told you repeatedly on the mountain. And now, here we are, things are falling apart, and you have done nothing. 
Is that true? Is what he's saying true? No. It's not true. What did God promise to do? He had promised, I'm going to send Aaron to you to help you talk. Had he done that? Yes. He had promised that the leaders were going to believe him. Did they believe him? Yes. He had promised, you're going to get an interview with Pharaoh. Did he get an interview with Pharaoh? Yes. He had promised that Pharaoh was going to say no. Did he follow up? Did he make good on that? Yeah. And what God promised next was, I'm going to break Egypt. And they are going to pay you to leave. Now, I get it. Moses probably thought that there was a pretty tight timeline on this. He may have thought in that first meeting, Pharaoh's going to say no, and then I'm going to throw my staff down, and it's going to be a snake, and I'm going to turn some water to blood, and he's going to be all impressed, and then I'm going to threaten to kill his firstborn, and he's going to let, let us go. But it isn't true that Yahweh has done nothing. He has been working already. The plan is in action. It is happening. And just because they didn't see the progress didn't mean the progress wasn't happening. But Moses says, you have not rescued your people at all. Moses' perspective was broken. Moses' perspective was broken. And when our perspective gets broken... We always question at least one of three things about God. We question his knowledge. Does he see? Does he know? Does he understand? We question God's knowledge or we question God's goodness. Does he even care? He may know, but does he care? Or we question his power. Maybe he knows and he cares, but he can't do anything about it. And if you're the children of Israel in this setting, if you're Moses, you wonder, does God care? Did he have a good plan? Is he able to rescue us from their gods? Moses needed his... Um, perspective reset because he was doubting God. Should have given you that slide earlier. There we go. And God is going to do that for him. God is going to reset his perspective. Yahweh said to Moses, verse chapter 6, Yahweh said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, and now here is the speech. This is, I mean, we're not to halftime. We are, we're far away from halftime. This is like the very, this is like the game starts. You can't make a basket. You've turned it over four times. And the coach is like, whoa, time out. <laughs> I need my first huddle here. Huddle? That's, that's like, I'm mixing my sports. Um, 
but I'm going to give an inspirational speech to bring us uh, back together. And this is that speech. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But, my name, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God, and then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Did you hear something repeated four times? If you wonder why I make a big deal out of the name Yahweh, in my defense, what I would say is, it's because God makes a big deal about his name Yahweh. Four times he says to them, in this perspective resetting speech, he says, you need to remember who I am. I am Yahweh. I am the existing one. I am the uh, self-existing one. I am the one who speaks and something happens. I am the one who holds all things together. They needed to have their perspective reset. It's an interesting statement he makes, and um, Pastor Kip referred to it last week. He says uh, in verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like the big three, as El Shaddai, the hiding place. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, we have all throughout Genesis, the patriarchs calling Yahweh, Yahweh. So we don't believe, at least um, the speaking team and the majority of um, commentators don't believe that this is legitimately the first time he makes his name known and then it's redacted back into or edited back into their speech, but rather he is saying how he related to them. Because remember, name has to do with reputation and being known has to do with experience to interact with, not mental awareness, all right? So you have to understand those two things about Hebrew, the language, in order to kind of get what Yahweh is saying here. I did not make myself known to them by the name Yahweh, but by El Shaddai. And so what he is doing is he is making a comparison between the covenant that he made with Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis and the covenant that he has made with Moses and that he's going to make with the people. In Genesis 17, we're not going to turn there, he starts and he does make his covenant relationship with Abram saying, I am El Shaddai. That's who I am. By the way, what did uh, Abram desperately need? A hiding place. He was one man, one uh, village in a promised land that he was supposed to have that was given to him, but he was surrounded by enemies and um, 
there was trouble on all sides. And so Yahweh appears to him. And what does Yahweh promise in Genesis 17? The land, the people, and a, and a, and a uh, purpose, right? That's what he promises. He promises a, a coming leader. In Genesis 17, the name El Shaddai focuses on the activity of God, what God is going to do. I believe that this passage, this uh, rallying speech, this new covenant that they're going to make focuses on the reputation and identity or the essence of who God is. In other words, instead of focusing on activity, focusing on character. And what does he say about himself in this passage that we just read? He said, I'm a covenant keeper. That's the kind of God I am. I'm all seeing. I've seen the misery of my people. He's compassionate. He cares about it. He is wonder working. He's going to be, uh, he's going to display his limitless power. He is rescuing. He's a rescuing God. He's a relationship seeker. The one who can speak and there is chose for some mysterious reason to make you and me. And then, despite all of our frailties and failings, he said, I want to know and love you. That's what he reveals in this speech. And then, if you didn't catch it, at the very beginning and at the very end of the speech, he says the same words, I am Yahweh. I think he's saying, I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. You want to know who I am? I'm Yahweh. Moses needed his perspective reset, and he seems to have had that happen. Verse 9, Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they didn't listen to him. Why? Because they were, they were stupid, because they were bad. Because they were idol worshipers. They didn't listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. I sometimes read these, these Old Testament stories and I see Israelite behaving the way, or I, I see Israel behaving the way they do, and I think, oh man, what a bunch of dopes. They had the presence of Yahweh. What's their problem? Their problem is they have been beaten and downtrodden for 400 years, for generations, generational oppression and suffering. And what it does is it changes the mental, um, their mental processes even to think differently than a free and empowered people. And by the way, it had just gotten worse. And they were asking, is this our new normal? Are we now having to gather our own resources in order to make the bricks? And when we can't, because we're not going to be able to, when we don't, we're going to be beaten? Their perspective was broken. They were too broken to follow at this point. 
Yahweh said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. Put yourself in Moses' shoes for a moment. Put yourself in his emotional condition. He has had high highs talking to Yahweh on a mountain. And then he has had low lows of the people saying, nope. And now Yahweh says, go do it. Moses said to Yahweh, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Oh, right, you've already used that excuse. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and the Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. In my notes, I call this a very short argument. (laughs) Moses goes and says, "Uh, remember you got the wrong guy, and God says, noted. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go do what I told you to do. So we just had the speech from God, right? That that huddle speech. Now we get um, something of the equivalent with Moses. It starts with verse 12. Uh, Moses said to Yahweh, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I I speak with faltering lips? And then Yahweh commands him to go. And then we get a genealogy. Don't you love genealogies? Probably this morning for your devotional reading, like prepping for for the sermon, you were like, ah, I haven't done some genealogies. Let's flip through and find some. Genealogies are pretty amazing. And if, if we will read the genealogies the way the original audience uh, read them, we will say, oh, nice. nice, clever. All right, so let's read this. These were the heads of the families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanok and Palu. By the way, I'm going to mispronounce names. Uh, Hezron and Carmi, these were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Interesting, son of a Canaanite woman. It's interesting how many uh, notable Canaanite women there are in Scripture, in the lineage of Jesus even. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi. So he chooses two of the 12 sons of Israel and kind of gives a brief overview of their lineage and then he gets to the sons of Levi. According to their records, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, Levi lived 137 years. That's pretty good. The sons of Gershon by clans were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, Uziel, Kohath lived 133 years. That's pretty good too. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi, These were the clans of Levi according to their records. Amram, so now we're just continuing down Levi's line here. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Oh, okay. So we're dealing with some big deal patriarchs, right? And Levi is going to be the father of the priesthood, Leviticus, the instructions given to the priesthood there. Um, so Levi, in his lineage, is Aaron and Moses. Had it ever struck you that Aaron and Moses were essentially priests? That they're in the right line? The sons of Izhar were Korah, 
Korah. Who knows what's going to happen to Korah? Not very many. Oh, it's going to be good. Well, we're not going to get to it in this book, but you can look it up. Look up Korah. Fun stuff there. Um, Nepheg and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, well, Mishael and Eliphazon and Sithri. Aaron married Elishabah, daughter of Amenadab uh, and sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu. Anyone know what's going to happen to Nadab and Abihu? Some of you are nodding. It's going to end very poorly for those priests. The sons of Korah were Aesir, Elkanah, Abisaph, and these were the Korahite clans. Uh, they're going to end up in a deep, deep hole. Eli Eliezer, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom Yahweh had said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. So the author wants you to understand that these clan leaders were a big deal, that Moses and Aaron are in that, that you get to meet some of the main characters of the rest of the story of the Pentateuch. And then he says, but I want to draw your attention back to who Aaron and Moses were, and that they are in this uh, priestly lineage. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was the same Aaron and Moses. Now, when Yahweh spoke to Moses in Egypt, he had said to him, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to Yahweh, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? What has the genealogy done? The genealogy has said, hey, Moses is a big deal in an important line. And what's Moses' response to God's direct command? At the beginning of it and at the end of it, I'm not your guy. I'm not capable of doing what you want me to do. If that's Moses, and we see what God ends up doing with him, what does that say about you and me in our moments of unbelief and disbelief about God? Is he done with us? Can he not use us because we disbelieved? Because we suffered hard and our faith wavered? And by the way, um, in speaking team, Bruce pointed out, because I hadn't seen it, beginning and end, right? Just like Yahweh had beginning and end, and that told us everything we needed to know about Yahweh, Moses' beginning and end is, I can't do it. And you know what? That's exactly where Yahweh wanted him. It may be the wrong, it may be a disbelieving response, but it is an accurate perspective of his inability to do what God is about to call him to do and his absolute need for dependence upon Yahweh. And that's the message of this genealogy to you and me is our absolute need to depend upon Yahweh. God was giving him the personal clarity he needed. He is not enough. Instagram is lying to you. I don't know how many times I've seen beautiful picture and it says you are enough. You're not. 
It's no unique deficiency on your part. I'm not saying you're bad or unskilled or unequipped. I'm saying you are human. You are finite. We desperately need to depend on Yahweh to move forward, to set our perspective, to help us do what he wants us to do. So what? I know, you're all sitting there thinking it. So what? Don't trust your senses. Trust Yahweh. I don't mean that what you're experiencing isn't real. It is real. I don't know what you're going through, I don't know what you're experiencing, but I know that our culture is hammering on us with lies. I know that you are experiencing things that seem to run contrary to what you think God has promised you. Don't believe that your senses are telling you the whole story. They are telling you something. And there is some truth in what they are telling you, but it is not the whole truth. Did Moses have a reason to be discouraged? Well, on one face of it, yes. But if he would have just remembered what Yahweh had said, if you could have like plucked him up and drug him over down the, you know, scrubbed the bar over and dropped him into it right then and say, look, see? Oh, yeah, okay. Move him back. That's what we get. We have a whole lot of New Testament stuff that tells us what our end is. Read the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. Secondly, do things get worse when you obey God? Have you experienced that? You're like going to take your stand, you're going to do what he says, you're going to obey him even though it's hard, and then things go worse. What do you do then? Well, you remember truth. You don't trust your senses. To tell you the whole truth, you trust Yahweh. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, amazing woman of the faith. She lost her first husband, uh, who was murdered by um, a tribe of uh, Indians that thought he was a cannibal coming to eat them, and they murdered him. And then she had a second husband who died to cancer 16 years later. Um, She tells a story in her book um, called Suffering is Never for Nothing. She tells a story that she had had gone into the, uh, she'd gone back to the mission field and she needed a person who knew the uh, primary language of the country and then the language of the people she was trying to reach because they they had a spoken language but no written language. And so she needed someone who knew both of these things so that she could do her work of bringing the gospel to them. And they worked happily together for a little while and then he was murdered. And she said, she said, now, if I had had a faith that was determined God had to give me a particular kind of answer to my particular prayers, that faith would have disintegrated.
But my faith had to be founded on the character of God himself. And so, what looked like a contradiction in terms, God loves me, God let this awful thing happen to me. God loves me. God let this awful thing happen to me. Contradiction in terms. What looked like a contradiction in terms, I had to leave in God's hands and say, okay, Lord. I don't understand it. I don't like it. But I only had two choices. He is either God or he's not. I am either held in the everlasting arms or I'm at the mercy of chance. By the way, if you are struggling with suffering, write that book title down or ask me later. Suffering is never for nothing. It's like that thick. I started reading it last night and just had to keep stopping because I kept crying. Um, Fantastic stuff. Fantastic stuff from Elizabeth Elliot on the problem of pain. We have to believe truth, which means grounding ourselves in truth. Third thing, are you suffering more than your faith can bear? Because you might be. I have been there. I was a pastor in my first church. Things happened to me there that caused me to suffer more than I could bear, and I was broken for about five years. Are you doubting God's knowledge, goodness, or power? And for us here who have been raised with a transcendent God who rages from the top of a mountain, we rarely doubt his knowledge or his power, but we will question his goodness. And then we feel guilty, so we don't want to feel that way, so we pretend we don't. If you're suffering more than your faith can bear, two things. First, you're in excellent company. John the Baptist, Gideon, David, basically every prophet questioned God at some point. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus in the garden, sweat drops of blood. If it's so bad that you wish you could just die, you are still in good company. I'm not sure Jonah's great company, but he's company. Samson, also, don't hang out with him at a party. But Elijah, Moses, Job, and Jeremiah all wanted to just go. If you are suffering more than your faith can bear, secondly, we're here for you. You are not expected to find that strength on your own. The Israelites were not told by Yahweh, figure it out and get back to me. He was about to act wondrously as he had promised. I'm not promising you God's going to act wondrously to call you back, but he has given you a community. Whether you're sitting here or sitting at home, If you are struggling more than your faith can bear, we have the QR code on the chair in front of you. It takes you. You can take a picture of that with your camera uh, when no one's looking, when we're done. Just do it slyly. It's right there. Uh, For those of you that are at home, you should be able to scan that. Um, At home, there's links. If you're here in person, 
You're going to find up here on the stage, as well as in the courtyard, a packet that explains discipleship counseling. You are not so weak and something's wrong with you. You are normal, and God has created you for uh, companionship and community, and we're here to offer it to you. Probably all of us need our perspective reset this morning. As we look forward to the week ahead of us, um, as you think about the children for whom you've prayed for decades and they're still away from the Lord, as you've prayed for a spouse, whatever it is, we need our perspective reset to understand that God is good, that he loves you, that he knows what's happening, that he's powerful, and that his plan for you is better than your plan for you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us. If someone is broken here or at home, I pray that they would not leave or turn the stream off without connecting with us or connecting with someone who will help them. You are a rescuing God who loves us, who built us for community, and I pray that you would keep building that in us. Bring us back to you, back to personal clarity about who we are and our deficiencies and who you are and, who, and your sufficiency. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Blessings on you. Have a great week.